0: CHAPTER Four, PART One, OF THIRTY YEARS A SLAVE. FROM BONDAGE TO FREEDOM. THE INSTITUTION OF SLAVERY AS SEEN ON THE PLANTATION AND IN THE HOME OF THE PLANTER. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION, OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. RECORDING BY JAMES K. WHITE. THIRTY YEARS A SLAVE. FROM BONDAGE TO FREEDOM. The Institution of Slavery as Seen on the Plantation and in the Home of the Planter by Lewis Hughes. Chapter Four Part One Rebellion Weakening, Slaves' Hopes Strengthening McGee's Slaves Taken to Alabama While I was absent on my last runaway trip, the Yankees had made a raid through Panola, and our people had become greatly frightened. AS SOON AS THEY HAD GOT BACK WITH ME AND MY FELLOW RUNAWAYS, THEY ASSEMBLED A GANG OF SLAVES FOR THE PURPOSE OF TAKING THEM TO ATLANTA, GEORGIA, TO GET THEM OUT OF THE REACH OF THE UNION SOLDIERS. AMONG THE SLAVES SELECTED FOR THE TRANSFER WERE MYSELF, MY WIFE MATILDA, AND THE SEAMSTRESS. THE OTHERS ALL BELONGED TO DR. DANDRIDGE AND BLANTON MCGEE. BOTH THE DOCTORS DANDRIDGE WENT WITH US TO ATLANTA. We traveled across the country until we came to Demopolis, Alabama, where we found Boss camped on the bank of the Tom Bigby River, with all the farm slaves from Bolivar County. This was the first time I had seen Boss since he was captured and taken to Helena. As my wife and I were the only ones in the gang who belonged to Boss, we left those with whom we had come, and joined his gang. We all then went aboard a boat and were taken to the salt works, situated on the Tom Bigby, ninety miles from Mobile. These salt works belonged to the rebel government. The first president of the works was Mr. Woolsey of Salem, Alabama. During Mr. Woolsey's term, the first part of 1864, when we had been there some time, he wrote to Boss, asking if he would sell myself and wife, and offering $3,000 for both of us boss was indignant at this and curtly refused my wife acted as cook at the salt works in the headquarters for the president managers and clerks mr woolsey was delighted with her cooking her bread and rolls he said could not be surpassed mcgee's great scheme when the election of officers of the works came off in the fall mr gallatin mcgee was chosen president boss then hired us all about one hundred in number to labor in these works but he of course received all the revenue the work assigned me was that of butler at headquarters and my wife was cook both women and children as well as men were employed in these works after some months labor here soon after gallatin mcgee became president matilda and i were removed to the montgomery headquarters where we remained until nearly Christmas. A few days before that time, Boss came to Montgomery and arranged for us to meet him in Mobile. We started at the appointed time, reached the city in the morning, and I went directly to the hotel where he told me he would be. I found him at once, and he informed me all about his plans for the future and what he expected to accomplish. He had purchased an island in the bay, a little way from Mobile, where he had decided to establish salt-works of his own. All the brick and lumber for the buildings had been carried there, and work upon them was to be commenced immediately after Christmas. He intended to make a home for the family on the island, and, as soon as he could complete the works, to remove all his hands from the government works to his own. He was very enthusiastic over this scheme, claiming that he would make far more money by it than he was then receiving from hiring out his slaves. He told me that he would remain in Mobile two or three days, and would go to Panola to spend the holidays after which he intended to bring all the family to Mobile, and remain there until the island was in readiness to be occupied. There was to be a general break-up of the old home and the beginning of a new manner of life. I stayed in his room at the hotel all the forenoon listening to his plans then I went back where my wife was stopping as I left his room he said Lou as he always called me I will see you and matilda at the boat this evening we went to the boat at the appointed time and saw the boss but he did not come near us as the boat was about to put off I looked and saw him walking up and down the levee apparently much excited running his hands nervously through his hair, a habit common to him when he was worried. He seemed greatly distressed. The military situation troubled him, for the Union army had conquered nearly everything, and the fact now stared him in the face that he would soon lose his slaves. He never dreamed in the beginning of the war that the Unionists would conquer, and that the slaves would be freed. But now he saw that not only all his wealth in the bodies and souls of men was slipping away from him, but that much, if not all, of the gain which these chattels had brought him was likely to take wings and fly away. McGee's Death We returned to the salt works the morning after leaving Mobile. Boss remained two days in Mobile, and then started for Panola, the home of his father-in-law, but, on his way... He was taken sick, having contracted a heavy cold which ran into pneumonia, and he lasted only a short time, dying on New Year's Day. He had taken cold in bringing the slaves from Bolivar over the river on barges. The river was overflowed about fifty miles out, and the only way he could get the slaves across was by using large barges made of logs. They were several days floating down in this way before he could get out to the railroad at Jackson, Mississippi, where he transferred them to the cars. This was too much of an exposure, and it killed him. After Boss died, all the plans were changed. Colonel Hunting, son-in-law of old Master Jack, came down to the salt works and hired us all out there for another year. This was the beginning of the year 1865. Of Master's plans concerning the island and his proposed salt-works, the family knew little, for they questioned me closely as to what he told me of the matter. What he spent on the island in lumber, brick, etc., was lost, as they knew nothing of the particulars of the expenditure. The madam remained at her father's, and the slaves at the works. I make some money. As I was here for another year acting as butler, thought I would try and see if I could not make some money for myself. I asked Mr. Brooks, the manager of the works, if he could get me some tobacco by sending to Mobile for it. He said he could, and on the fourth day thereafter, in the evening, it came. I was anxious to get it the same evening, but Mr. Brooks said, Oh, I guess you had better wait until morning, then, when you finish your work, come down to the office and get it. You will then have more time to see the boys in the works." In the morning I was up early, and after doing my morning work I was off to Brooks's office. When I went in he said, "'There it is, under the table.' The package was so small I felt disappointed. "'A hundred dollars' worth ought to be more,' said I to myself. But I took it, and went out among the men. I thought I would try to sell it at five dollars a plug, and if I could not sell it at that, I would take four dollars. I must make something, for I had borrowed the money to buy it with, and I saw that to clear anything on it I must at least get four dollars a plug. The money which I had borrowed was from three fellow-servants, who had been fortunate in earning some little time, and had saved their money. The first men I met in the works bought two plugs at five dollars each, and after I had been there about an hour all was sold. So I went back with a light heart. Mr. Brooks said to me at dinner, "'Well, how did you get along with your tobacco?' "'I did very well,' I said. "'The only trouble was, I did not have enough. "'I sold it for a hundred and eighty dollars.' "'Well,' said he, "'if you did, you made more clear money than the works here. "'How much a plug did you sell it for?' At the same time drawing out his pencil, and commencing to figure it up. "'I had thirty-six plugs,' said I. AND I SOLD THEM FOR FIVE DOLLARS A PLUG. NOTHING MORE WAS SAID JUST THEN, BUT AFTER DINNER, BROOKS AND TWO OF THE CLERKS WENT OUT ON THE VERANDA TO SMOKE. WHEN THEY WERE IN A GOOD WAY SMOKING, BROOKS SLIPPED INTO THE DINING-ROOM AND SAID, WELL, THAT WAS FINE. YOU GOT FIVE DOLLARS A PLUG FOR THE TOBACCO? OH, YES, I SAID. TOBACCO IS SCARCE, AND THEY WERE HUNGRY FOR IT. IT WENT LIKE HOT CAKES. THE PRICE WAS NOT QUESTIONED i sold it once what is the prospect for selling more he asked will you sell it for half the profit if i furnish the tobacco i said yes so he sent the same day for a box of tobacco about 500 plugs when the tobacco came the box was sawed in two and one half sent up to my room i put some fellows out as agents to sell for me uncle hudson who took care of the horses and mules at the works john at the hospital william head chopper among the one hundred men in the woods each brought in from forty dollars to fifty dollars every two or three days and took another supply sometimes when i had finished my work in the afternoon i would get an old pony and go around through the neighborhood and sell four or five plugs it was a mystery to the servants how i got the tobacco but i did not let on that brooks was backing me In two weeks we had taken in $1,600, and I was happy as I could be. Brooks was a fine fellow, a northerner by birth, and did just what he said he would. I received one half of the money. Of course this was all rebel money, but I was sharp, and bought up all the silver I could find. Just as we got on the other half of the box, Brooks received word that the Yankees were coming, and to send all the hands to their masters. I was glad that I had made some money knowing that I would need it if I gained my freedom, which I now knew was quite probable, as the Union forces were gaining ground everywhere. But the message ended my money-making, and I prepared to go home to Panola. Going Back to Panola Mr. Brooks fixed the return papers so that my wife and I could leave the party of slaves at Demopolis, and go on thence to Panola by rail to convey the news to Madam that all hands were coming home, that the Yankees were expected to capture the saltworks within a short time. At Jackson, some seven miles from the saltworks, we were delayed overnight by reason of lack of facilities for crossing the Tom Bigby River. The report that the Yankees were coming through had created a panic among the white people, and hundreds fleeing from their homes had gathered at the river, waiting and clamoring for an opportunity to cross though slaves were property and valuable on that account the whites seemed to think that their own lives were in danger and to be protected first they therefore took precedence of us in the morning about seven o'clock a steamer was seen coming at a distance but it could not be discovered at once just what the character of it was the whites became alarmed some said the yankees a-coming others said it is a gunboat they will surely fire on us but as the boat drew near the people saw that there was nothing to fear it was only the regular passenger boat besides the hundreds of people there were scores of wagons filled with household goods to go over and the passage was slow and tedious we finally got across and travelled as far as demopolis where matilda and i left the other slaves and took a train and went on to panola I delivered the papers to the madam from Brooks, which told her all the particulars concerning the break-up at the salt works. She sent wagons right away, after the other slaves who were coming back on foot. They were not brought back to Panola, but were hired out to different farmers along the road home, some in Jackson, some in Granada, and others in Panola Town. These were all small towns in Mississippi. My wife and I went to work at Old Master Jack's. I on the farm, and my wife at her old duties in the house. We longed for freedom, but were content for the time with hoping and praying for the coming of the day when it should be realized. It was sad to see the changes that had come to the white folks. Sorrow had left its impress upon all, and we felt it, notwithstanding all that we had suffered at their hands. Boss had willed the homestead in Memphis to Mrs. Farrington, and she was getting ready to take possession. He had borrowed a great amount of money from her when he bought the island at Mobile, and the rapid coming on of the end of the rebellion destroyed all prospect of the success of his salt-works scheme, even before his death, and really rendered him bankrupt. Hence the transfer of the Memphis property to her was the only way he could make good what he owed her. The madam now had no home, but was compelled to stay with her father, old master Jack, she was sadly changed, did not appear like the same person. Her troubles and sorrows had crushed her former cruel and haughty spirit. Her mother had died a few months before, and then her husband had followed, dying suddenly and away from home. Then much of her property had been lost, and social pleasures and distinction were gone forever. Who shall say that the wrongs done her poor, helpless slaves were not avenged in this life? The last I knew of her, she was still at her father's. INCIDENTS A servant who belonged to Dr. Dandridge ran away and got to Memphis just after it was captured by the Union soldiers. He was put into the army, and was stationed at one of the entrances to the city. He was to halt all persons passing to or from the city, no difference who they were, and learn their names and their business. Young William McGee and his sister, Miss Cherry, one day went up to Memphis, and, to their surprise, were halted by this former servant of their uncle. When they came home, they were speaking of it to their father, and old Master Jack said, "'And you halted, did you?' "'Why, yes,' replied William, "'we had to do it.' "'Well,' said the old man, "'I would have died, died, before I would have done it.' "'To think that a servant should have halted you.' and one who had belonged to the family like Anderson. This old man, notwithstanding all his boasting in the absence of immediate danger, was the veriest coward when danger was present, and if he had been in the place of young William, he would have halted with the greatest alacrity. While at the salt-works I had a little experience at nursing. A fellow-slave was taken ill, and I was called on to care for him at night. I always liked this work. It was a pleasure to me to be in the sick-room. Typhoid fever was a new case to me, but I remembered what instructions boss had given me about it. I pitched in to do what I could, but the fever was so great he lasted only a few days. My fifth strike for freedom is a success we had remained at old jack's until june eighteen sixty five and had tried to be content the union soldiers were still raiding all through that section every day some town would be taken and the slaves would secretly rejoice after we came back from alabama we were held with a tighter rein than ever we were not allowed to go outside of the premises george washington a fellow-servant and Kitty, his wife, and I had talked considerably about the Yankees, and how we might get away. We knew it was our right to be free, for the proclamation had long been issued, yet they still held us. I did not talk much to my wife about going away, as she was always so afraid I would be killed, and did not want me to try any more to escape. But George, his wife, and I continued to discuss the matter, whenever we had a chance. We knew that Memphis was headquarters for the Union troops, but how to reach it was the great question. It was Sunday, and I had driven one portion of the family to church, and George the other. The family was now very large, as the madam and her family were there, in addition to old Master Jack's, and all could not go in one carriage. On the way back, young William McGee came up through the farm on horseback, a nearer way home from church and encountered several servants belonging to some of the neighbors. He asked them what they were doing there, and if they had passes. To this last question all answered no. Well, said he, never come here again without having passes, all of you. At this they all quickly disappeared. When old Jack came home, Will told him what had passed, and he immediately called for George and Uncle Peter, the foreman, and told them that no one not belonging there was to come into the quarters without a pass, and any servant with a pass should be brought to the house that the pass might be inspected. They thought, or feared, that if the servants were permitted to come together freely, they might plan ways of escape, and communicate to each other what they knew about the war and the Yankees. George came out, and finding me, told me what they had said. "'No slave from outside is to be allowed on the place,' said he." I replied, "'If we listen to them, we shall be here until Christmas comes again.' "'What do you mean?' asked George. "'I mean that now, to-day, is the time to make a start. "'So late in the afternoon, during the servants' prayer-meeting, of which I have heretofore spoken, we thought would be a good time to get away, as no one would be likely to see us. "'We talked with John Smith, another servant, and told him all about our plan.' asking him not to say a word about our being gone until he was through feeding the stock this would give us another hour to advance on our journey as the feeding usually took about that time from six o'clock until seven our fear was that we might be overtaken by the bloodhounds and therefore we wished to get as far away as possible before the white people knew we were gone it was sunday afternoon june twenty sixth eighteen sixty five when George and I, having made ready for the start for the Union lines, went to bid our wives good-bye. I told my wife to cheer up, as I was coming again to get her. I said to Kitty, George's wife, We are going, but look for us again. It will not be with us as with so many others who have gone away, leaving their families and never returning for them. We will be here again. SHE LOOKED UP AT ME, SMILING, AND WITH A LOOK OF RESOLUTION SAID, I'LL BE READY. SHE WAS OF A FIRM, DARING NATURE. I DID NOT FEAR TO TELL HER ALL MY PLANS. AS MY WIFE WAS SO TIMID, I SAID AS LITTLE AS POSSIBLE TO HER. GEORGE AND I hurriedly SAID OUR FAREWELLS TO OUR WIVES. THE PARTING WAS HEARTRENDING, FOR WE KNEW THE DANGERS WERE GREAT, AND THE CHANCES WERE ALMOST EVEN THAT WE SHOULD NOT MEET AGAIN. I could hardly leave my wife, her agitation and grief were so great. But we were off in a few moments. We crept through the orchard, passing through farm after farm until we struck the railroad about seven miles from home. We followed this road until we reached Cenotobia about half-past seven in the evening. We felt good, and, stopping all night, we started the next morning for Hernando, Mississippi, another small town. And reached there at two o'clock in the afternoon the most of the bridges had been burned by the troops and there were no regular railroad trains fortunately however flat cars drawn by horses were run over the road and on a train of this kind we took passage on several occasions the passengers had to get out and push the car over a bridge as it was not made so horses could cross on it the horses meantime being driven or led through the stream and then hitched to the car again. After we had gone through this process repeatedly, we at last reached Memphis, arriving about seven o'clock Monday evening. The city was filled with slaves, from all over the South, who cheered and gave us a welcome. I could scarcely recognize Memphis, things were so changed. We met numbers of our fellow-servants who had run away before us when the war began tuesday and wednesday we spent in making inquiries and i visited our old home at mcgee's station but how different it was from what it had been when the mcgees were there all was changed thursday we went to see colonel walker a union officer who looked after the colored folks and saw that they had their rights when we reached his office we found it so filled with people waiting to see him that we were delayed about two hours "'before we had an opportunity of speaking with him. "'When our turn came, we went in and told him "'that we were citizens of Memphis "'until the fall of Fort Pillow and Donelson, "'when our master had run us off, with a hundred other slaves, "'into Mississippi, and thence to the Salt Works in Alabama. "'He questioned us as to where we lived in Memphis. "'I answered, "'What is now headquarters of the Union forces "'was the home of Master Mr. Edmund McGee, "'who is now dead.' After a few minutes I said, Colonel, we want protection to go back to Mississippi after our wives, who are still held as slaves. He replied, You are both free men to go and come as you please. Why, said I, Colonel, if we go back to Mississippi they will shoot the gizzards out of us. Well, said he, I cannot grant your request. I would be overrun with similar applications, but I will tell you what you can do. There are hundreds of just such men as you want who would be glad of such a scout. We thanked him and left. End of chapter four, part one. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.